All right, welcome everybody to episode number three of Elevate Your Grind, brought to you by Cannabis Lab. Um, hope you guys enjoyed our first two, two and a half episodes. We had Robert Freeman, we had Brady Cobb, we had Andrew Felix. Great group of people, and realistically, folks, all we're doing is going through the leadership of the Cannabis Lab Board. Um, I am joined by Ari Gersten of Ackerman. Ari, you are on the Dade County Board? Yes, I'm on the Dade County Board of Cannabis Lab. I've been on the board now for two years. Awesome. And um, last year I was the educational director. Um, this year I'm just a board member. Very cool. So I sit on the Brower Board, you're on the Dade Board. Um, I don't love going to your meetings because of how far they are, but... I feel the same. I, <laughs> I think it's a great group of people. So. All right, today I want to get a little bit into your story, into the Ackerman story. Um, I don't hold my opinions back on this show, mainly because they're not that strong. Um, I know a lot of great cannabis lawyers in this space, and there's a lot of good firms that are focusing on it. Personally, I've had the best relationship with Ackerman. You, Zach, John, you guys have all been super friendly. Wealth is a wealth of knowledge. You know, I know Michael Schwamm from Dwayne Morris. We know Jerry Greenspoon, who's a big supporter of Cannabis Lab as well. But you guys really just seem to have not just one or two rock stars, but a solid team of people focused on this industry. I, I even met two um, two of your lawyers out on your West Coast office that came to a San Diego event that I had hosted. Amazing people as well. So talk to me, we'll, we'll get to Ackerman in a second, but talk to me about you. You know, sure. obviously you grew up, did you always want to be a lawyer? What attracted you to law to begin with? Sure, certainly. Um, definitely did not always want to be a lawyer. And thank you for the compliments. Appreciate it. Sure. Um, definitely did not always want to be a lawyer. Definitely did not ever want to do cannabis law. Had no interest, had no inkling that I would ever end up doing anything like this until actually within the last, I guess, five to 10 years, you know, uh, situations happened in my career. I've been practicing for about 15 years now. And uh, unfortunately, about 10 years into my practice, the one of my closest colleagues committed suicide and I ended up transitioning my career and that was right about the time when Florida was starting with medical marijuana back in uh, 2013, 2014, 2015 and you know it was really exploding here so it was something where I was like wow this is really interested people are really invigorated really interested seems like a great state to do it you know the sunshine state we're very agriculture here um embraced it and just kind of try to learn as much as I could about what was going on, what was happening. Unfortunately, uh, things have been going a little bit slow. Mm -hmm. uh, we haven't made much progress in Florida since that time. Uh, we have some licenses have been given out and such, but otherwise, you know, it's largely the same people that applied then are now in business. Um, so anyway, that little development there is what kind of drew me into the industry. And then when I saw what was happening, I guess, in Florida, the rollout has been so slow, kind of maybe even more interested in this industry and really fighting for expansion of it. Because I saw in the limited view of what we have here, just the amount of help that it was helping those people who could get access to it, that this just needed to be more available to others. Sure. And no. um, it really motivated me to get more involved and to fight to, to really try to open it up to more to others. I, I think that's great. So, you know, obviously, you couldn't have just studied to be a cannabis lawyer. Exactly. Um, I mean, I know you went to the University of Miami, so things might be a little bit different there. Um, I was originally going to ask Zach Corbin to interview, but he chose to present at UF, and so I wrote him off completely. Now, <laughs> I'm hesitant to sit down with someone from the University of Miami. Obviously, with my Brady interview, I went to Florida State. But you, what type of law did you study that really led you, or what were you practicing before that led you to natively get into the cannabis side of things? I'm assuming some kind of something to do with government. And folks, I'm not a legal expert, so if I don't use the right terms, well, you're probably not a legal expert either. So. Go on. Well, I did. I did actually. <laughs> I studied litigation and business law, okay. um, and I also did some white collar defense. So that really helped me get an appreciation for what happens in the criminal system and what it's like to be a criminal defendant. Sure. Um, to see what it's like for someone to go through that system is really eye opening. Um, and when I saw that this, you know, marijuana is illegal. I was not a marijuana user. Um, seeing what people go through to use this product really is shocking mm -hmm. because it's not harmful to a lot of people. I mean, of course, children shouldn't use it, and people who don't have medical conditions shouldn't use it unless it's legal in their state. But otherwise, it's not a harmful substance like a heroin or a cocaine where you can overdose and die. Um, or alcohol, really, for or that matter, alcohol, which is exactly. perfectly legal. So, you know, it's something where it was, it was something that just motivated me to really want to get involved in it and, and really learn more about it because 
when you start digging into it, you, you realize that it's been used throughout history. I mean, really, since almost the beginning of time, people have been talking about cannabis and how they use cannabis in all kinds of different ceremonies and legal proceedings and, and all for all kinds of purposes. Yeah, I am. Um, you know, it's funny. I, I watch a lot of Joe Rogan. and I hope this doesn't take us on too much of a tangent. But, you know, they're saying a lot of the miracles and things that happen in religious texts were actually drug use. Right. And not in a bad way, like, oh, that person was high and they, they um, you know, had a vision, but that people get and this is me maybe getting way too spiritual for this podcast, but that these things were put on our planet for that connection to a higher power. So there's a lot of angles there. And let's not go down that rabbit hole. But you just brought that up. Um, so you mentioned Florida a lot, and I definitely want to go through all the things that you've done in Florida. But within Ackerman, do you focus just on the state of Florida, or do you practice outside of Florida as oh, well? Definitely outside of Florida. Okay. Um, you know, a lot of my focus has been on Florida because there's been a lot of activity here. But certainly, I've done litigation outside of Florida. We have a lot of transactions that are outside of Florida. We're across the country now. Um, we have 700 lawyers and 22 offices. Wow. So we have folks everywhere. How big is the cannabis team? Uh, the cannabis team is probably about 25 lawyers, I believe. Yeah. And, um, you know, obviously we have offices out in the West Coast, like in L.A. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a different world over there now. Um, we, have, we have an office in Denver as well. It's very different over there, but we're all part of the same team. And, you know, their insight on a mature market is very helpful because they have insight about things that are not at all regulated here or even addressed under our law that help us understand how we might be able to make things work under Florida law that aren't sure. addressed. So Florida is, we're, we're slow and steady here, you know. Steady. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I said this at the Thursday night Broward meeting, and I said, 10 years ago, if you wanted to do it legally, you had to go to Amsterdam. Five years ago, we were going pretty much to Denver. And, you know, just the other day, I walked into a dispensary here in Florida and was able to get marijuana 100% legally. So I love the fact that we can do that, but there's only 14 companies, operating companies that are providing it right now. So we're about to get into Florida, but just leading into that, is there a market that you think is kind of, or should be the de facto model for states adopting medical marijuana? Because California has been legal for a very long time. They keep increasing taxes. They seem to have a problem with licensing and they still have a pretty, thriving black market. I've heard very positive things about Colorado, but when you look at the grand cannabis economy, if you will, um, a lot of the early, the guys who are out front are failing now and they're, they've run out of money. I mean, today, MedMen's CEO is stepping down. And I mean, that's just the last event to happen in a trail of bad events from who's probably one of the market leaders in getting out there. I mean, I first learned about MedMen listening to him on the Howard Stern show. So do you see a market out there that it should at least for now be modeled after? I mean, I think Colorado is a very good example for everyone to follow. I mean, they did a a very slow and steady approach. You know, they weren't as open as an Oregon or a Washington. Um, They didn't grow nearly as quickly, um, but they they are very innovative. You know, they only recently allowed out-of-state companies to invest and to own, you know, businesses there. Um, they started out with vertical integration. You know, they've, they've learned from their mistakes and they've taken the opportunity to be innovative. Whereas a state like Florida kind of looks at everybody and says, well, we don't really like to do anything and we want to just try everything on our own. Um, and while at the same time pointing to California and saying, well, look what they did over there. You know, unfortunately with California, you know, you had it's two extremes. You had basically a medical program that was just... Uh, had no principles. I mean, it was almost wide open. And now you have a very tough regulatory um, system for for recreational, which they're trying, but it's just too onerous. And there's too many people that are falling outside the system. It's very expensive. The medical program was so large that um, there's just people falling outside that just don't want to shut down operations and try to enter into this very expensive recreational market when they can't really compete. You know, the prices are just so artificially high because of all the compliance costs and whatnot. Yeah, and, and personally, when I look at the California recreational market, listen, as somebody who enjoys this product, I mean, the, the, the what they're putting out there is incredible. But when you go into a California dispensary and you are truly looking for medication or you're looking for a, a, a nutraceutical, if you will, if you truly want to use this as the legalization process is intending, you're not getting that type of advice. You're getting, what do you think of this versus that? Oh, well, this one has more THC, so you want to mm-hmm. buy that. Mm-hmm. When realistically, even someone like myself who enjoys using flour the way that it's been used forever, look at some of the lower percentages just because 
I don't always want to. I don't always want Everclear. Let's put it that mm-hmm, way. Sometimes mm-hmm. I want a beer, mm-hmm. right? So, do you think that that thriving recreational market kind of brings that stigma back around and puts that back on the cannabis industry because it it's overshadowing completely the medical market? Well, I think you raise some very important issues there because there's several issues packed in there that I think are are very valid, and one of them is is really shortages. Also, is that you know when markets are gearing up to become recreational, sometimes the medical is kind of left on the sidelines. Like, oh, we're not going to really invest into medical products. We're not going to invest into serving medical patients. We want the recreational customer because it's unlimited. Basically, mm-hmm. we don't need a certain we don't need to get one of 10,000 or one of 100,000 patients. We can get anyone who walks in the door. But that becomes a problem. There become shortages. I mean, this is a product that grows in nature that require that requires manufacturing, that requires cultivation. So, it's not just unlimited supply. Mm-hmm. So that becomes an issue with shortages. Um, also, there is a, a big disconnect with knowledge, um, being that it is somewhat of a gray area in, in every state. You know, we don't have a, a pharmacist. You know, we have a bud tender. Yeah. And, and the, the levels of education there are very greatly, um, if any. And, and a lot of times it's just really based on, you know, personal experience, which might not be at all like the person that they're recommending to. Mm-hmm. And that can become something that's very dangerous when you have a vulnerable population, like someone who's in need of this medication for a debilitating condition. So I think that's a very important concern when people think about recreational is that, is that going to be a substitute for a medical regime? Are we going to create a more formal medical regime? Or are we just going to you know blend everything into one? So. I think those are all considerations that people have to take into account. And that's one of the concerns that I have with the ballot measure that was slated. People refer to it as the MILF measure mm-hmm. um, because all it was in Florida, which was going to basically, it's a very simple measure. It was going to be on the Constitution, but they didn't have enough signatures this time around. Basically, it was just going to change our law so that anyone who was over 21 could walk into a medical marijuana treatment center instead of having a card. Yeah. So there was no real separation between recreational or medical. But I mean, you're competing with people going to the Super Bowl, you know, trying to get products. Yeah. You know, there's things like that. And here in Florida, with the vertical integration that we have right now, there there is a supply constraint. There is not enough product to go around. Um, it's difficult for patients to get a consistent mm-hmm. uh, supply of what they might want specifically. And a lot of times people are forced to choose alternatives. No, and, and I fully agree with that. So after I make the statement, I want to get into the Florida kind of history so this way people can understand it more because you had talked about the MILF and how they didn't see that is beyond me. There's nobody in that boardroom that just said, hey, guys, maybe not the best mac- acronym, but it is Make It Legal Florida, <laughs> and it is it is an acronym, which is MILF, and I don't know if that was intentional or not. I don't, you know, I haven't seen that in any of the official advertisements. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so there is a shortage. There is a shortage. Um, there's a shortage of strain. There's a shortage of flour in general. So, you know, until recently, until they posed, uh, passed smokable flour, somebody who used cannabis would go into a dispensary and see a ton of products that they don't recognize, that they never use, they're not familiar with. And that truly, to me, there needed to be a huge education on it. I have a history of cannabis that is not very long. But I had never seen a, a syringe with oil in it or, or a topical cream or anything else like that. Um, but if a patient here in Florida goes and finds a dispensary and they find a strain that works perfectly for them, there is no guarantee that the next time they need to, to re-up that that particular strain is going to be there or in a quantity that they need to buy. So then they're deferred to buy, oh, well, this is similar to that or this is similar to that. But going back to your point with genetics and strains, everything affects people differently. Very so. differently. It's incredibly different. It's a That's a huge problem. And it's not as bad um, as it was before because previously this would happen and people would have driven two hours, two and a half hours to get to the one dispensary that was somewhat remotely nearby. Yeah. Now there's more dispensaries around. There's still a lack of products, but at least they're not driving. You know, maybe they're driving yeah. a half hour, but they're not driving two and a half hours to get, you know, to the truly by the airport to find out that unfortunately today this is all we have. Yeah. You know, and that's that's a big problem because, you know, one of the problems with cannabis legalization is that, you know, it's a catch-22. You can't get the research, you know, without it being legal. They don't want to legalize it until they have the research. Yep. So we've been in this problem now for years. It's like, you know, one thing has to go forward. You know, unfortunately, it seems like we're going to be legalizing without having all the research together. The bright side of it is, is that with this substance, we know that it's been used by millions upon millions of people since the beginning of time. So people haven't been dropping like flies during that time period. You know, this isn't something that you can overdose on. 
um, while obviously you don't want to harm yourself, it's not something like um, you know heroin where you can just yeah. you know inject yourself and die on the side of the road. Um, so luckily we have that, but there isn't the science that we'd like to have for medicine. And when you're forcing patients to make these choices or to, to, to choose alternatives based on a bud tender's recommendation, it's, it's not ideal. Yeah, and it, I agree with that. So from the medical standpoint, the research would be incredible because, you know, someone like me, I, I'm a user. I started around 22 or 23, right, after I had found my work ethic, after I had started working and I found a little bit of success and used it as a, a disconnect at the end of the day. So, you know, a lot of people say they don't use it growing up, don't use it while your brain's in the development mode and everything else. So I have, and everybody who gave me crap, it is a three-month old daughter, not a three-year-old daughter, mom, dad, Laura, I'm sorry that I got that wrong. Mackenzie, when you grow up and we let you watch this, yes, you're a lot younger than I, I made you out to be. But, you know, this is a conversation because of me being in this industry that I'm going to have with her. And, you know, I spoke to two people that you work with, and I won't call them out by name because I don't want anybody knowing. But they were saying that my kids do this and I have to hide it uh, because of that stigma and everything else. So, you know, it, I know as a parent, it's my responsibility to have that conversation with my kid. But we don't have the information as parents except for our own uh, response, you know, our own experiences to have that conversation to say, hey, when you're 14, 15, yes, I understand mom and dad do this, but maybe you shouldn't do it yet because your brain's still developing and have the research why to have that educated mm-hmm. conversation. So, But it's, it's very similar to alcohol. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's a very similar conversation whereas people will see their parents drinking alcohol and we all know the kids shouldn't be drinking alcohol. It might not have the same effects on brain development, but there are other negative impacts that are just as bad and it could lead to addiction. Um, so it's a very similar conversation that one would have. It's just, it's an, it's an adult choice. Mm-hmm. I mean, now even cigarettes, as I understand it, are 21, 21. Or older, which is amazing. I mean, that kind of happened just like overnight without any real fanfare, but now you go into CVS and there's like a sign there. Hey, you have to be 21, which is seeming, which is pretty amazing to me. I don't know what people did overnight when they're just like in college students. I can't. I mean, I remember in college there would be a whole crowd of people outside of the dorm the first year of college. That would be a whole crew. I don't know what those people would do. That one night they flip the switch and it's, suddenly they can't buy the cigarettes anymore. It's like no one would have thought you needed a fake ID in college to get cigarettes. No, <laughs> that's crazy. The only thing you do at 18 now is go to war. So right. Um, so I want to get into Florida's medical marijuana. So. We have a very big state. As I understand it, we're probably the second largest medical market in the country. And we have 22 licenses of those 22. 14 of those companies are operating. I believe the 15th is acreage, but they don't have flour. They still need to grow it, so they can't open their doors yet. How they will they now have a store? They do. They so do the bot- have a store. Okay. Yes, they just last week they opened up their store. Okay, um, the botanist. Yeah, the botanist uh, acreage. You know, Murph it, it's a is a pioneer in the cannabis industry. A great guy. I've, I've had calls with him. So congratulations to Acreage for coming into Florida, being number fifteen. Uh, I really wish you were number like two hundred and fifteen, but you know we'll, we'll get there eventually. So we go no medical cannabis. There's a vote, was it 2016, 17? November 2016. 2016, and then all of a sudden, cannabis, medical cannabis is now legal. They have to implement the program, but flour is off the table. It's only extracts. Or So how did that work? How was that legislation? Were, were you guys a part of that yet? Because I know you're very instrumental in, in shaping a lot of the laws in Florida. So. Uh, well, so, so when the amendment came to pass, you know, right before that, Florida had loosened the law slightly to allow people who had... Um, two doctors saying that they had one year to live, those people could get um, cannabis, like full-strength cannabis. Prior to that, it was only people who um, had epilepsy and some very limited conditions they could get that low THC cannabis. Mm-hmm. But then, I guess right before the um, amendment passed, they loosened it up. They passed what's called the Right to Try Act okay. that allowed people with terminal conditions to get medical cannabis, kind of allowed the MMTCs to start planning you know, the full-octane okay. cannabis. Still no flower. Um, and then when the amendment passed, you know, they were preparing for the amendment to pass throughout 2016. Mm-hmm. Then when it passed, um, they kind of like, they kind of stuttered a little bit to figure out like what we're going to do to really implement this. Is it just changing what we already have? Is it a whole new regime? Unfortunately, they settled upon interpreting it to be basically just a slight change to what we already have. Um, and that kind of handicapped the program slightly. Um, the Florida legislature decided that they were going to put all these limitations on the program. They decided that they weren't going to allow smoking. Um, They made that permanent in the program. 
Uh, I'm not really sure where they got the basis for doing that. Um, we were involved in, in litigating um, for one of the licenses of one of the original um, people who applied. So how many how many licenses were originally issued? Because I remember it being a very, very small quantity. It was supposed to be five. Five. And then it was five six. Five in the entire state of Florida. Right. It was supposed to be five, and it was supposed to be five regions of Florida. Now, the state was divided up into regions, but these organizations didn't actually have to service these regions. <laughs> so it was kind of nonsensical. Um, it really made no sense. But yes, there were five, and you had to apply to a certain region, and that's how they scored them. Um, and then it became a whole debacle. There was okay. all kinds of problems. Yada, yada, yada. I think it was 28 applicants total. And the, the licensees that we have now, the 22... Those are all of the people whose applications were actually scored in that process. All those people who got their applications scored first to last all have licenses now. Okay. And that's it. No one else has any licenses. They haven't accepted any applications. It's only those people. Throughout the past three years, they've gradually made settlements, which enabled those people to get their licenses in different stages. So it was five, then six, and then it was, I think, 13, and then 22. Wow. So we have 22 in the entire state of Florida. and <laughs> But if they I, each get 35 stores. Now. 35. Well, each except for one of them. Um, yeah. So, but they're able to get more stores as we have more patients come online, correct? They're able to get more. They're able, Okay. So it started out 25 and then it went to 30 and then it went to 35. Now it's at 40, I believe, actually, because okay. we just crossed the threshold. But April 2020, that provision goes away. So they'll all be able to get unlimited. Okay. Which is a great, I mean, it's a great advantage for the first 14 companies to really have a, a foothold in this industry. But again, we have 14 companies in the entire state. And Florida is a giant state. In California, I'm guessing there's tens of thousands of companies. Um, you know, it is not vertically integrated. And I think you and I had kind of had this conversation uh, the Thursday night in Wynwood saying that, you know, the 14, they have their they have their lead, they're out in front, they've established their dispensaries, they've established their business models, uh, and they are some really, really rock star CEOs. Brady, Kim, the CEOs of these companies are incredible, and I'm sure they can look at their supply chain and say, you know, if we can cut that business and outsource it, we can really make some more money. Um, so how do you think that the 14 feel about it right now? And then how do we feel about, and I can't do math, the other eight? that um, have not built out their businesses yet. Uh, do you think that the 14 are ready to break up vertical integration? Do you think they're kind of on the fence? I know those eight are probably completely against it right now. I think it's, I think, I would probably think that those eight are, are the most against it out of any um, because they're the newly licensed ones mm -hmm. and, so, and a lot of them haven't really had a chance to really fully set up. The problem is, is that the investment is huge. You know, it's, while the, the uh, first movers have this advantage, um, it's very costly. It's, it's incredibly costly. I mean, they have a lock on the market, but they have to set up a cultivation site, they have to set up processing, and they have to set up all these stores. And that's huge in terms of investment. There's no banks that are gonna lend any money to mm -hmm. these people. There's no mortgages. So you're talking about a cash business with private investors financing, and you know it's, it's a gray area in terms of federal law. So you have a lot of risk. So even though these people have basically what we've called a golden ticket, and it being a, a cartel, or a super license, it's not as easy as one would think. So there's a tension between like, wow, I've got the monopoly and wow, I could do so much more if I could just avoid having to deal with this aspect of it because that's not what I do. That's not why I got into the business. I didn't, I didn't sign up to, to be a cultivator. So what were the costs of those first initial state granted licenses? Because I doubt they're anywhere close to where they are now. Uh, the application fee was seventy. Was approximately seventy thousand dollars. So seventy thousand dollars, which by no means is cheap, and I'm sure you know attorneys' fees and everything else. We can probably call it on a hundred, hundred twenty. You guys are really good, so maybe more. Um, but today, you know, people are paying, and, and I'm going to completely generalize because I don't want to call anyone out. Forty to sixty million dollars just for the license, and then as you said, you know, I think the number one company in Florida has forty-two to forty-five dispensaries already. So you're starting out in a forty to sixty million dollar hole without even operating, just to say, okay, now you can operate. And then as you said, you have to, no mortgages. And that's something that I just learned just now. I, I realized that you couldn't get institutional financing. I realized that you couldn't get loans or banking or anything else, but just something as simple as a mortgage on a building, yeah. not to be able to access that. So really- Or rented a space. 
that has a mortgage on it. So, you know, you can't even go into a building where the owner of that building has a mortgage on that because that owner won't be able to, to give you a lease there. So realistically, if you think about it right now, for those remaining eight companies, it's all Florida is really doing is opening the doors for only people like Acreage or Canopy or someone who has millions of dollars in the bank, which candidly is drying up to be able to enter the space to compete. Um, are they even going to continue to enter Florida right now with the high barrier to entry given that cash is so tight in the overall cannabis market? Well, that definitely remains to be seen. I mean, of those eight, you know, um, several of them have cultivation authorization. I believe all except for one, but none of them have processing or dispensing authorization. So, you know, that remains to be seen what ends up happening with those licenses if those people hold on to them or if they change hands again. You know, at this point, some people are just holding on to them basically and going through the motions hoping that they could flip them to somebody else. Because, you know... An out-of-state operator, you know, there are a lot of them here already, but there are some others that aren't. Those people have experience. They could presumably come in, have less, have lower startup costs. You know, they have more experience. But still, it's a huge capital-intensive investment to get started, to get rolling, to get just product on the shelves. Sure. So going back to it, so Florida is a completely vertically integrated state. And when we say vertically— Even delivery. So it's, so it's like everything you could possibly think of. And some people forget about that. Just every possible thing, even the minor things like a delivery is just you have to do it. Yeah. So we have to take here in Florida, we have to take all the way from putting the seed into the ground to putting the end product in the customer's hand, whether it's delivery, whether it's retail. I think those are the only two methods. But that it has to be tracked the whole way. So you have to have a, a cultivation company. You have to have a processing company. You have a, have a logistic company. You have to have a retail company. You have to be that company. And yes. So you, <laughs> have to, you have to manage all these businesses. Now, there are people, like you said, the ones that are operating out of state that come in that can kind of set that up. So that's what we're doing here in Florida. And as I understand it, you know, I met with one of your colleagues earlier this year in March. And, you know, they were all excited because you guys had – basically made or not made but one of case that said vertical integration was unconstitutional right yes this was in march we are now in january of the following year and everything is still <laughs> vertically integrated so you know this is my my knowledge of the law you guys won i thought hey we're gonna start seeing the break of a vertical integration maybe i should start reaching out to some of my friends that have farmland and let's get into this licensing game um but we're still not there so yes. talk to me about why not even why you won you guys won and then why aren't we seeing that so yes. what still has to happen to get there so it's a big it, it's it's unfortunate what has happened um like you say we did prevail uh we have we were successful we were also very optimistic when we were getting a new governor that he was going to put some pressure on his administrative agencies to kind of have a different interpretation of the constitution than the former department of health had um unfortunately that didn't help either so we've been in we've been in litigation now this whole time. We've prevailed at the circuit court, we prevailed at the appellate court, and now we're at the Supreme Court. So it just has taken this amount of time to wind through the courts. Every time we've won, the Department of Health and the state have appealed. Okay. And that's just the normal legal process. This is a high stakes case. Um, it's going to have an impact statewide. So the Florida Supreme Court agreed to actually take the case. They don't take a lot of cases. Um, we're actually very lucky that they decided to take the case because we're going to get some conclusion. Um, so very soon. The state's uh, brief is due to be filed February 5th, which is next week. Okay. Um, at that point, it's going to be in the hands of the Florida Supreme Court. Hopefully we'll get a ruling on this issue. We can move forward after that. But as of now, uh, every court that's looked at it has said that vertical integration is not permissible. And of course, there's not any other industry that I can think of where there's complete vertical integration. Um, I can't think of anything that we're, any other product that must be made that way. Unless it's by choice. Unless it's, you know, well, yeah. we're, we're a successful company, so we decided to vertically integrate to lower our margins. But that would be illegal in some industries. That's not even legal because that's antitrust. Yeah. Um, so here we have this forced vertical integration. Now, we're not against vertical integration per se. Um, we're not trying to abolish those licenses. So if they want to keep that as an optional type of license, then that's fine. We just think that there should also be other types of licenses for people who don't want to do complete vertical integration. No, and I agree with you. And I'm going to give two completely Todd Rosales opinions here. If you look at two of the CEOs in the space, and only because I interviewed one, and, and you now I'm going to take his assumptions about the other, you look at Brady Cobb and Kim Rivers, right? 
Brady Cobb wants to have the top shelf Pappy Van Winkle type stuff. So for him, vertical integration makes sense because he can control every part of the the supply chain. But I'm sure Kim Rivers, who has the most stores, who has probably some of the most products, who has brands already established within TrueLeave, would love to be able to work with a bunch of different cultivators and brands and bring those under the TrueLeave umbrella and just take that model of scale and repeatable. And I think there is space there's a ton of space in this state alone for both of those models, right? Um, I mean, we see it with liquor. We see it with cigarettes. We mm-hmm. see it, and I don't mean to just go for the sins there, but you know, we see it with a lot of products that there is space for everything, and it doesn't mean that one's better than the other. It's just what do you prefer? Sure. So. It's like a craft. You know, it's like a craft model almost. You, you, there's definitely a need for a craft brand. Certainly a need for that. But also imagine if that craft brand were to fail. You know, they have a crop failure. Mm-hmm. That could happen. Um, it's it's an agricultural commodity. So you know if if that crop were to fail, you have one of twenty two of the only twenty two licenses around that's going to fail. They might not be able to provide product. Mm-hmm. You know that could be disastrous to a market. That's that's not a good thing. And if it's forced vertical integration, it's very difficult to substitute with another product. I mean, there's provisions in Florida law where if there's a crop failure, you can make some arrangements, but it's very challenging. And it's not obviously something that people want to do. Um, You have to provide all kinds of documentation and whatnot to substitute. And plus, we're also not thinking here in Florida, we don't have edibles yet. We don't have every product. And a product like that, you don't necessarily want to be just made by one company. I mean, because it's almost, it is a food, you know, and there's different tastes there. There's different chefs you might want to have. So just having you know, shirts that come in black, you know, people not, might not want that. You know, it's just no, people might want something else. You know, they might want something with a little more kick to it or something else. You know, whereas the flavors at one of the MMTCs might just be boring. No, and I think it's really cool. So we do only have 14. And the really cool thing about that is you do see a lot of support between the companies, mm-hmm. right? Um, I'm sure people think, oh, there are 14 Goliaths battling it out. No, I really think it is one of the greatest co-opetitions I've ever seen. Um, I just this morning saw Kim Rivers tweet, and and Kim, I guess I'm mentioning you a lot here, but she tweeted about Liberty Health Sciences and congratulating them on their earnings. And, yeah, I you know, well. a major CEO of a rival congratulating another company on their earnings. I mean, realistically, she sees Liberty and she just sees the entire Florida market coming up. And Brady said the exact same thing. So I think that is really cool. I would actually love to be a fly on the wall to have a CEO conference of those 14 sitting at the table and really hear their opinions. But um, I you think- know, those are, fa- those are absolutely the most fascinating things, actually, that C-Lab does. Mm-hmm. At least once a year, they have a conference and- that part of the conference when they have like a CEO roundtable, mm-hmm. it's very insightful. I mean, I've been going to it for years and, and hearing them talk is, is really interesting to, to hear their perspectives because they are very unique. I mean, as the market started out, there was a little bit of competition mm-hmm. or pointing fingers at one another. But like you say, that has all dissipated and they don't they do not do that anymore and they do all get along. I don't know if it's mutual pain and suffering <laughs> or what, but they do all seem to get along and I don't know that they necessarily directly compete 100% against each other. They are targeted towards different um, populations, I guess, at yeah. this point. And it's almost become like like a fraternal organization uh, of these CEOs and of these companies in the state of Florida, which is really cool, in my opinion, which is part of the reason I love being in this industry, um, is, is everybody really wants to work together. And, and, and let me say, you know, we do challenge the Department of Health on a lot of things, but they are a very cooperative and, and um, hands-on regulator. And, and when even though it could be said because there's only 22, but they are very accessible. So it isn't something where you're dealing with just like a, a black hole or an empty mailbox. I mean, you get responses from them. You get detailed responses. They'll give you insight. That's cool. And that is very helpful to have a regulator that's like that. So. I do have to compliment them in that regard. I think that that's great. Very cool. So, talk to me about this. So, if you guys are very are successful in you know winning your case, vertical integration is unconstitutional. What does cannabis 2.0 look like in Florida? Are we going to have different levels of licensing? Do we not know? Does it still need to be looked at? You know, should you guys win? And and I think a lot of people are cheering for you. Um, you know. At C-Lab, we talk about that a lot of us would like to see the breakup of vertical integration. I talked to some of the chief compliance officers at some of the MMTCs, and they kind of, without saying so much, would say, yes, we would like to get rid of a few of our business units to streamline operations. What does that look like the day after? What does Cannabis 2.0 look like in Florida? So the Department of Health was actually on this path. They were they were ready to start this sort of what we think would be would have been the correct regulatory process. They were going to have actual meetings to implement the Constitution. 
and they released a, um, a template of rules to go forward and implement Amendment 2. Unfortunately, what happened was is that the legislature immediately stepped in. They called a special session, and they said, if you keep going forward with your rulemaking or your regulation-making process, then we're going to take your funding away. Instead, you have to go through this rulemaking process under our statute, which is basically a glass ceiling. You can't do a lot of the things that they wanted to do because the statute prohibits prohibits it. So there is a process set forth in place where the department basically has to solicit input from constituents, like a normal rulemaking process where they'll have workshops throughout the state, they'll make proposals, people will write in comments, like in a typical administrative mm-hmm. rulemaking process, except it's there's no um, artificial ceiling of just improper regulation from the legislature. You know, it's the amendment that we voted for allows the Department of Health to regulate with the input of the citizens. Instead, what we have is the legislature has imposed their will on the Department of Health, and it, whatever they say, the Department of Health has to interpret. Yeah. Um, so instead of being from the top down, it's going to be from the bottom up. And hopefully, um, if the department goes forward with what it's supposed to do, they'll be setting workshops as to how to implement the provisions of the amendment, which are very broad, and will take input from the public. And people, I'm sure, will be talking about how there should be small business, there might be you know, micro licenses and things like that, ability for people to have you know, craft cannabis, mm-hmm. to share licenses, all kinds of different things. I envision, um, if we were to prevail, a real um, rebirth for small business, because that's really who's been left out of this. You know, People who want to do delivery, people who want to do their own processing, people who have their own ideas about their own packaging and how they want to have their own stores, they want to offer you know, specific services to specific patients. You know, there's so much that small businesses can do. They're just, right now, they're just totally excluded. Yeah, I, and I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, one of the things I love about cannabis that I've always thought, even before I got into it and before it was legal and everything else, is it's going to bring jobs back to this country, jobs back to the state. We are a heavy agricultural state, mm-hmm. right? And those farmers, you know, farming in, in this country in general is just not doing well, right? So, you know, we can have a new tech startup come here. Right. And whether it's call it, you know, a super awesome technology company, but the chances are that company is going to go to a city and it's going to be a lot of white collar, highly educated jobs, coding and everything else. And yes, I know there are a lot of very successful coders that just skip college and everything else, but it is a very online tech centric world that we live in here, whereas something like cannabis is bringing back your straightforward manufacturing and blue collar jobs. It's bringing back truck driving, agriculture, manufacturing, factory work. I mean, these are jobs that have been historically disappearing out of this country that this one industry is bringing right back. So Mm -hmm. I I see your point and I couldn't agree with you more on that. Yeah. And Um, that's just the jobs that are directly connected. I mean, also you have the building jobs, you have the AC jobs, you have all kinds of support staff that's needed for these companies. Companies. I mean, you're opening up in rural areas that are going to need new roads and more transportation methods. I mean, there's so many things that are spun off from these businesses that we're just kind of leaving on the table. Um, it's also inspired people to go back to school to learn about agriculture. You know, people are actually inspired in learning about plants. Mm-hmm. You know, for, for the last, you know, 20, 30, 40 years, there hasn't been that much inspiration about learning about plants. But now, you know, colleges are starting to create programs about cannabis and about hemp, how to grow them, the different types. You know, it's a very fascinating plant with a lot of different varieties, and there's a lot to be learned. It's not as simple as just putting a seed in the ground. I mean, there's a lot that goes into it. There's a lot that can be learned, and there's a lot of professional and non-professional jobs that can come out of that. I, I think that's awesome. And so you touched on something, and there's a hundred more things that every time you talk, I want to go into. So, but you know, we we are obviously filming this with a microphone and a cell phone, so we don't have unlimited time. But um, hemp, I think hemp. Beyond, listen, there's a bazillion CBD companies out there. CBD, great. It's, it's a great substance. I, I work with really Ricky Williams' company and going into that herbal spot. Um, but CBD is just one of many things we can do. So I had talked, and this is very funny, I talked about uh, at Cannabis Lab, somebody please deliver me a hemp straw because I am very sick. And in, in Palm Beach County and Broward County, they're mandating these paper straws that disintegrate in your drink. You can't finish your drink with it. The waiter's giving you two or three. So yes, okay, we're saving the sea turtles, but now we're killing the trees. Uh, my colleague Dave Levy and I were online um, and there was a company that provided a hemp straw. We bought a pack of them. 
They're actually in the Starbucks screen. I got to tell you, it's one of the greatest things I've ever, one of the greatest inventions I've ever seen in my life. And I can't wait to see what else hemp brings us. Mm -hmm. You know, do you have an idea of, you know, how do we have that type of business in Florida right now? I know Texas is really looking at hemp creatine and hemp fibers. Is Florida focused on that yet? I know our hemp industry is very young as well, too. It's very young. We have a lot more to go as to hemp. Um, Right now, we've got the rules out as to like selling hemp, not yet as to seeds. Um, that's supposed to, all these rules are supposed to be finalized, I guess, by the end of, well, towards the end of January, I guess now, February. Um, so we're not there yet, but we're moving very, very fast. Uh, there's one issue with the hemp is that while we have this great, uh, new farm bill that kind of allows all this to develop and to grow, there's still a lot of stigma associated with hemp. There are still a lot of controls about manufacturing. There's a lot of controls about cultivation. So there's a lot of hoops that one has to go through to, to really manufacture and to cultivate it's not as simple as growing tomatoes yeah and you know perhaps it should be a little at least a little bit more simple for well, it's people. regulated almost like the thc side of cannabis it's in- regulated incredibly tough um and you know some states are, are very strict as to you know what happens if you have a hot plant that tests you know above you know the, the threshold um of, of thc you have to destroy it um and that could be disastrous for people you know all of a sudden yeah. you have a crop because cause scientifically there's no difference between the plants. I mean it's hemp and cannab and hemp and marijuana are, are legal terms. The plant itself is all cannabis sativa. It's the criteria is the amount of THC, which isn't a defining characteristic no. until you actually harvest the plant. So it's a real issue for farmers because there's a good likelihood that you'll have a hot plant. I mean there's there's I mean it's you're looking at a low threshold and it's not a scientific Procedure. I mean, it's a matter of you're, you've you've taken genetics, which you think are going to grow um, low amounts of THC, but you know it's nature. So there could be an issue with that, and that's that's a risk for people, and that's also a risk for for financial institutions because you know they're talking about with these banking bills. There, you know, we had a lot of progress with the Moore Act um, and the States Act, but unfortunately, what happened is is it's now kind of stuck where the person who's who's in charge of kind of setting the bill for hearing is kind of interested in imposing a THC cap. And if there's more than 2% THC, then that wouldn't necessarily allow access to banking. Yeah. Now, that's a pretty unreasonable cap, 2% THC. Um, no medical marijuana dispensary or company operates at a 2% THC. That would be essentially a hemp banking bill, yeah. which is unneeded because hemp's legal. So it's not even really helpful at all, one would think. Plus, it's risky because, again, you don't know it's the percentage of THC until you're at the finish line. So, you know, you spent a whole harvest cultivating a full field of, of plant, and then all of a sudden it's garbage when you're ready to harvest. Mm-hmm. You don't know until then. So there's no way to get a real preview of what the outcome's going to be. So that's cra- that's just a crazy way to, to live and to operate. Yeah, I mean, there's a huge risk for farmers who, again, it's not a stable business as it is, you know, and there's so many other outside factors that can affect your crop. So you make it through the harvest, you make it all the way there, you're excited, and then keep the, you know, keep the cork on the champagne because you got to get rid of it and start over. Yeah, and then, of course, I'm, I'm sure you've heard that, you know, sometimes you get these eager beaver law enforcement agencies or, or <laughs> yes. private carriers that... You know, we had one that we heard of that was going through New York and, uh, you know, they were shipping hemp and they shipped it through FedEx. And apparently there's a term in the FedEx carriage um, contract that says you're not supposed to be shipping hemp, period. Um, I, I assume the shipper didn't know this yeah. or I'm not sure. But whatever it was is FedEx called um, the authorities and said, hey, we think we have marijuana here, you know, because they thought it was marijuana. It looks like marijuana. It smells like marijuana. Um, at first, law enforcement wasn't interested. But they were very persistent. They called again, and they kept calling. Finally, someone in New York seized this massive truckload full of hemp. Mm-hmm. All of it had the proper certificates of testing showing that it was below the limit, that it was actually hemp, that it wasn't marijuana. They didn't care anyway. They took everything. And then, you know, week they arrested the truck driver. Um, weeks later, it ends up that it, they, they decided to release it all. Actually, I'm sorry. This one wasn't a truck driver. It was a shipment. So weeks later, they ended up releasing the shipment, but it's too late at that point. Yeah. You know, the person had already been arrested, put in jail, had court hearings, had to hire an attorney. And, you know, that's for their own liberty. They had to do the same to get the product out, but the product is perishable. You know, it's a horrible, horrible situation when you can, you know, you, you sell your harvest. You try to ship it. You do everything right. You put all your certificates in the shipment. So if anyone opens it, it says, hey, listen, I'm legal. Yeah. And then someone, some eager beaver just says, no, I don't think so. We don't believe you. We're just going to seize it, you know, at the peril of you going to prison. And it's just really unfair. 
No, and, and to your point, I think education is the biggest thing that the, the entire country needs on this plan. Um, so there is a lot of legislature that is trying to help uh, medical marijuana and marijuana in general, but realistically, research can't be done, I don't believe, and I could be wrong, until it's descheduled. Is there anything in the current legislation that says that although it is Schedule 1, that the states can make their own decision to allow proper facilities to do research, or does it have to be descheduled at the federal level first? I think there's like, was the University of Mississippi or Missouri has a Mississippi. license? Mississippi, who doesn't? Right. Uh, well, see, the problem is, is that the research isn't necessarily the problem. People can do the research. It's if it's where they want to do the research and if they want any funding. A lot of research is done at federally funded institutions, mm -hmm. and it's done with federal funds. So not having federal funds and not being able to do it at a federally funded institution is disqualifying, basically. You can't get anything done. Got it. So states can do all the research they want if you can find a state that's willing to bankroll you know, a study and, that, and, and a location where it can be done properly – um, that's not subject to federal funds. So, so realistically, we're waiting till it's descheduled when it's. You know, people say schedule two, schedule three, but I I agree that descheduling is really the only way. It's almost as if changing the scheduling to two or three or even four would almost make it worse sure. because it's not going to make. It certainly won't make any of the state businesses legal. You know, those folks are still. None of that stuff fits under any of the schedules. It can't. So it doesn't help. Yeah. It's just a matter of really why is the federal government involved? Um, we have. Mostly the state regulation is, is the enforcement arm anyway. Um, you know, this, it's the state police power that's doing the, the, the grow house bus and the cannabis bus. The feds aren't doing that. That's not something that's typically on their radar because they're more focused on criminal enterprises that are, you know, moving cocaine and heroin and other substances internationally. Yeah. You know, it's more of just a, uh, a vestige of the past that it's even controlled federally because, you know, it's just not a matter of um, – strict federal control. It, it really is a local matter. So um, descheduling is so important because if we remove those restrictions, the sky doesn't fall. You still have this very strong state-based regulatory body. Of Every state has, has made their own choice, and a lot of them have kept you know, strong criminal penalties, and that's their prerogative. So those wouldn't go away. You know, There'd still be that ability for each state to decide what they want to do. It's just there wouldn't be this overarching constraint that's kind of just looming in the background that, that really only... All it does is kind of interfere with people. It doesn't necessarily protect the public because it's just cannabis isn't something that they're necessarily focusing on anyway. Understood. So we are Super Bowl weekend in Miami, so we're going to wrap this up shortly. But there's one more thing I want to cover with you. And this is something I've always been very interested in is the future of cannabis, right? So everything goes the way that we all want it to go. Uh, it becomes federally legal. How do you think at that point the states are going to fight to keep up the walls between states? Because you have places like Massachusetts and Illinois that have gone out on a limb and made it legal. And I'm sure they don't want the Florida and California marijuana coming and flooding into their state and putting their own cannabis business out, businesses out of business. I mean, if you think about it, it is a crop. There are climates in which it grows better than others. Um, I believe it's more tropical climates. And again, I'm probably wrong about half the things I say. But, you know, California, Humboldt is a place where it grows well um, in Florida. And I know you can kind of control that indoor, but there's still it's still a plant. And there's still geography and there's still resources. I'm sure this is your opinion because it's very far out there. But do you think the states are going to fight to keep those in, the interstate commerce away to kind of disrupt that free market to protect the cannabis companies within their own states? Or will it be medical stays within the state and rec can go wherever it wants? What do you think that's going to look like? And that's going to probably be like cannabis 9.0, you know? I'm thinking for medical, you know, let's just talk about recreational at least to start. So yeah. the only place where I've actually seen some of what you're talking about which is very innovative, is California. And unfortunately, a lot of their other stuff is not working out all that well, but they do have some very innovative provisions in there. And they're trying to establish essentially like the ability to create like a Napa Valley for cannabis, mm -hmm. you know, so they could have a special designation. They, they could establish special designations that they will, they will be only people who meet the criteria will be able to say, hey, this is Napa Valley grown cannabis or, or Humboldt yeah. grown cannabis. So that is something where, you know, if the states are willing to embrace their own products, you know, that is something that the states, I think, will definitely compete on, you know, because there is, you know, wine can come from a lot of different states, you know, but like, you know, Napa Valley is still one of the most yeah. famous, you know, that's 
just a lot more famous than Alabama wine. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> at the same time, there's fresh from Florida. You know, people are going to be going to be drawn to the Sunshine State. You know, there's there's definitely an opportunity. You know, we've, we're very famous with oranges. I'm sure there's a branding opportunity there for a Sunshine State sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that in terms of each state is going to likely trying to gravitate towards what they can in terms of you know what their geography is. You know, some states like a Massachusetts, I'm not really sure. You know that they have anything besides an indoor ability. You know, yeah. they got some nice buildings to grow inside. I'm not really sure that their outdoor grows are all that great. I just don't know with the temperature yeah. wise. But I think that states will, like a Florida and like a California, will try to distinguish themselves. You know, grown in the sun. You know, grown by hand. They're gonna. They're, the people are gonna try to create more of a craft brand. I think. You know, not. You know, there's always gonna be a Budweiser. You know, there's always gonna be a Miller. Uh, there's gonna be a Corona, but there's also gonna be the Samuel Adams, you know, and there's gonna be other brands where, you know, it's a unique perspective. Like yeah. the Sam Adams has got the Boston Lager, you know, it's like got that unique sort of, oh, okay, you think of like the Revolutionary yeah. War and whatnot. I could see that happening with cannabis. And the only state that I'm aware of right now that has anything in their law to kind of foster that sort of thing is California. Okay. And uh, I think though we're likely to see that in other states. Um, California's law is huge. Um, most of the other states are much uh, slimmer in terms of law and regulation. So it's just a matter of building out the law and regulation and having more of an opportunity actually even to participate to even get to that point. But I do think that we're likely to see um, states encouraging their own businesses and, and inspiring their own, you know, like almost like tourism. Yeah. Um, I think we're also likely to see cannabis tourism. Uh, I think some states are already competing on those levels. Yeah. They don't all admit it. But, I mean, states um, such as Colorado have taken notice that obviously their tourism numbers have gone up. They haven't, I don't believe, officially agreed to concede that it has anything to do with cannabis. They think it's a coincidence. But, you know, they have noticed that there have been trends. Um, In the tri-state area of New York, New Jersey, and uh, Connecticut, I know there's a competition there, basically, who can be legal first. You know, because that is such a a cluster there. So it's going to be unique. There's different pockets of the country where I think... Based on how they are traditionally, you're going to see some unique um, aspects of how they develop because, you know, it's going to be hard for New Jersey to legalize without New York and vice versa or one to stay legal and one to not. I mean, it's just too close. I mean, it's just like it's almost like it is one state, but it's, you know, different groups well, of people. For know? them, it's am I buying it near my house or am I buying it near the office in yeah, my opinion, right? right? So whoever legalizes first is – makes you realize, am I buying it by my house in New Jersey or am I buying it by my office in Manhattan? So Yeah, and, and they lose out. I mean, because, you know, here in Florida, we have no taxes, but in those other, most other states, you know, we're talking about 25% typically of, yeah. of taxes. So, you know, why go through the Lincoln Tunnel to get, you know, cannabis when you can just get it in New Jersey? It doesn't make sense. Exactly. Well... Like I said, we are the Friday before the Super Bowl. We are in Miami, so we need to get out of here and go home. Ari, I really appreciate your time, but because this is a Super Bowl episode and this is going to air after the Super Bowl, I'm going to make you pick Chiefs or 49ers. 49ers. All right. We'll see if you're right. We'll see. You you guys will know instantly if he's right. Ari, really appreciate the time. Anytime. I'm sure there's going to be more Ackerman people on this podcast. Really looking forward to the partnership with you guys, and thank you again. Anytime. And come see Ari at any of the Cannabis Lab events, the, the Dade County ones, and then our conference at the end of the year. Um, hope you guys enjoyed the Super Bowl party. I'm saying that before that, but this will air after it. Um, check it out. Join CLab.com. Everybody have a great night. Have a great weekend.